This episode is brought to you by Roundtable Group, the experts on experts. We've been connecting attorneys with experts for over 25 years. Find out more at roundtablegroup.com. Welcome to our show, Discussions at the Roundtable. I'm your host, Michelle Lux, and today I have a guest, Richard Sanders, who's the lead investigator and principal at Cypherblade. He's a blockchain forensics expert and cryptocurrency cybercrime investigator. Rich, thank you for joining me today to discuss your role as an expert witness. Can you share with me, what is it exactly that you do? Cypherblade is a blockchain analysis company. We're most well known for basically tracing cryptocurrency. We, we present truth through blockchains is oftentimes what the, uh, the phrasing is. And that means uh, quite a few different things. We're most well known for our scam and hack investigations. Basically, if somebody has cryptocurrency stolen from them or they're defrauded, they'll oftentimes come to us in additional law enforcement. Um, we provide other services such as like solvency audits for cryptocurrency exchanges and services, AML insights and best practices, um, escrow with OTCs, that sort of thing. And naturally, because of all the disputes that would be associated with such things, you know, failed um, OTC transactions or ICO investments or a real popular one, um, probably unsurprisingly is actually divorce. Um, pretty much any situation where somebody might be dishonest about you know, the nature of the assets or what happened to them, we've become a go-to. So that's obviously been a very high demand on the expert witness side. Um, far more, actually, than I ever would have anticipated. And I think maybe, yeah, I, I didn't really think this through too much. I thought I would just let this flow naturally before the call. But that might actually be the most interesting thing to talk about. When I you know, had launched Cypherblade with my two co-founders, we never thought that you know, expert witness stuff would be in demand like this, but it just makes sense, right? And I mean, I mentioned the thing with the divorce stuff earlier. Um, and then it actually turns out that not only had we not thought of that, but there's actually such an undersaturated market for it where we can't even keep up with the demand. So, yeah, to the extent where some might say good problem to have, that does get really overwhelming. So one thing I might suggest for very, very niche experts like us is that if you have something where it, it is just there's literally no competition in the realm of experts for what we do right now. I think I've seen one person testify from CypherTrace, and that's not their focus. Chainalysis won't provide testifying experts. We're the company that does this. Um, we need competition. That's healthy for the industry, but a whole other thing. Um, but while you have what is effectively a monopoly, that is the time to scale. So I might suggest to other experts to actually minimize their caseload, do the opposite of what I had done when I had launched Cypherblood, because it was just nonstop. We're constantly getting demand. I worked myself to the ground, um, had some impact in the personal life. But if I had, instead of taking on maybe... 33% more of the cases I did and just put that time into growing the company, I would have been better off both in my personal and professional life. Do you do national cases, international cases? Like, are you all over? Both. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm not resting on our laurels. I know inevitably there are going to be people that try to get into this. I mean, yeah, all things considered, we are not cheap. Um, there are people that might try to butt into this and Hey, for the majority of the expert cases, that's fine. You don't need to be a, um, you know, wizard at blockchain analytics, like my company is, that's what we're known for. You know, we, we do, we do the super complex investigations involving like, you know, North Korean laundering networks. And I can promise you that some random dude that's trying to hide, you know, a couple million dollars in Bitcoin from his wife is not as sophisticated as that. So there is tons of room for competition. Um, that being said, it's kind of one of those things where scaling it again, I, I just, I can't emphasize that enough. There's also another really good lesson, I think for, experts that are very, very niche in a field like ours. And this probably wouldn't apply 
I'm speculating here because I, I haven't served as like a generalist expert or an expert in other fields and I never will. Um, but I would imagine experts like that, you know, they, they might be doing a lower rate or they might not be in as much demand. They might have more bandwidth to do like pre-engagement phone calls and that sort of thing. So this advice might not apply to most experts, but the ones that are in a real niche don't do pre-engagement phone calls. They are not worth it. And I know that sounds so counterintuitive, but we have more people that are able and just willing to hire us from a, you know, two, three emails back and forth than getting on, you know, it's never just a quick call. There's no such thing, at least in my experience, as a five minute or a 15 minute call. And it's very rarely, oh, I'll make an exception for this. Then there's another call. And just it's this constant sunk cost fallacy. So have some really firm boundaries and don't make exceptions. And then you had mentioned that, you know, you need to be more selective with your cases, even though that you just get so many that come to you. Do you now turn away cases? We do, but the thing is, is that it's you want to be respectful of the person's time too, right? You don't want to say it in a way where it leaves a bad taste in their mouth. Um, so, so you know, it's a bit of a balance of both. You you want to be respectful to them while also not giving them, while giving them the minimal amount of time. And that sounds really harsh, but that's you know, the nature of business. Um, an example of what that looks like is that if somebody comes to us and they say, "I think my husband has like seventy thousand dollars in Bitcoin that he's hiding from me." I'm going to tell them it's probably not worth your time to engage us because yeah, you're looking at a minimum, probably 6,500 retainer on something like that. That's in the best case scenario where the husband decide, doesn't decide to drag everything out. It just, there becomes a time where, yeah, we have to ask these questions right out of the gate. Um, what's the transaction data? That's another reason why we have a policy. We don't do pre-engagement phone calls because all it's going to result in is please send us via email the transaction data. I cannot give somebody a retainer estimate unless I have that because that's just the nature of blockchain transactions. Um, you might give me one transaction and say, you know, this is a withdrawal from my husband's Coinbase. Tell me where it went. And it could literally take me two seconds or it could take me two days. So that's another reason why you have to really, and getting some copy for that. That's probably also the, some of the best advice I could give. Not having to type that out every single time, it adds up. Even, oh, it's just a few minutes to tell them I need this. Two, three minutes over the course of 20 times a day adds up over a week, over a month. You also work with the federal government. Do you see a difference of how you prepare being an expert witness versus private litigation? Yeah. So, I mean, I'll, I'll be limited on what I could share on specific cases. And it also, it depends upon the government agency. So that's probably the best insight I could give there. Um, yeah. I've noticed that there is a distinct difference between, for example, like a regulatory and a law enforcement agency and it's government. And with anything with the U S government, you have to go through all these convoluted systems, like system for award management, all that other stuff. My personal experience is that we became known in the industry. So yeah, without name dropping a particular agency, there was one particular agency that had seen something I was doing um, for an unrelated case as an expert. And they had met with me in the course of that. And there was an internal recommendation within that agency for an unrelated case that they reach out to us. It was a direct recommendation that way. I'm not sure if that's the norm for other experts. Uh, one thing that I think our, our firm should do in the future, and I don't know whether or not this is good advice for other experts, but it seems like it might be, is getting set up on, on government contracting sites. But yeah, I'm still learning about all that. How does government acquire experts? Um, but our experience so far, because we're not like, you know, within those systems, like, you know, soliciting contract work or any of the sort, it's all been direct referrals. And that's not isolated to US government. 
Um, we've seen that with like surprisingly a um, couple legal aid cases in other countries. The the ones that normally would just be non-starters for us because the you know the amounts lower. Um, so that applies too. And it also like um, why well, I, I won't get into too much on anything you know as an expert for federal government on the U.S. side. One thing that is related to that would be how do you be an expert in more stringent jurisdictions? Because I will tell you this from my experience, and this would be advice I would give to an expert that um, is in a niche field or not. If there is a possibility that they are going to testify in the UK, holy moly, are there requirements for those courts stringent? So anything like you know, relying upon evidence and really meticulous attention to detail in the reports which is important in the U.S., but English courts are absolutely bonkers with that. It's a night and day difference. Is there any advice you'd like to end with for our listeners about how to be a great expert witness? I, I would say probably the last advice I, I could give is don't rest on the laurels. Right now, we're a little bit of a, well, not a little bit, we are effectively a one-trick pony. Um, yeah, if a privacy by default solution such as like Monero or, you know, even something native to Bitcoin um, that could be integrated natively, I mean, such as like CoinJoin um, or mass adopt it. Uh, effectively, the blockchain analysis we do goes out the window and we could still make a livelihood doing training for law enforcement, teaching them on things like tactical site exploitation. But I think um, across the board with experts, you have really niche. And again, this is my anecdotal experience. You would have a much better insight on this than I would. But my anecdotal experience with experts is that they're either extremely niche like us, or they are generalist. And what I mean by that is the IT guy that, yeah, he could do a little bit of cyber, a little bit of crypto, but yeah, maybe strike a balance in between. That that might be the advice I have. But yeah, this was uh, interesting. I appreciate that. Well, hopefully we'll um, call you soon for some some cases that won't be too overwhelming. <laughs> I know you're busy. Well, no, the good news is that I've been scaling aggressively the past few months. So I, I might have been working 68 hour weeks the majority of the year, but my past week was a, a cool 40. So. Wow. Well, keep enjoying that life work balance. Kind <laughs> of go from there. But thank you, Rich. You have a good rest of your day too. You too, Michelle. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast, Discussions at Roundtable. Our show notes are available on our website, roundtablegroup.com. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening apps. 